You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. The end of the chapter, beginning at verse 29. We'll read verses 27 through 30 together, and then we'll open in prayer. Philippians, chapter 1, beginning at verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Bow our heads together as we pray. Father, we come now before Your Word, and there is always the temptation when we read of some things that are hard to understand and hard to accept to sit in judgment over Your Word, and that is not our place. We must yield to it, and it must inform our thinking, our behavior, our theology, and our doctrine, and we ask that this morning that would be the case. Give to us illumination through the Spirit, and sanctify us by Your truth, and may we yield to the clear teaching of Your Word in every area of our lives, that Jesus Christ might be glorified both here and in heaven and both for time and for eternity. We ask it in His name. Amen. Being a Christian in 62 A.D. in the city of Philippi or in the city of Rome was very much different than being a Christian in 2007 in the United States of America. That should be patently obvious to anybody who knows anything about church history or to anybody who simply looks at world events today and observes what it's like to become a Christian or to be a Christian in the United States in 2007. In 62 A.D. in the city of Philippi or in the city of Rome or for that matter anywhere within the Roman Empire, being a Christian would cost you your reputation for sure. Any respect that you did have with anybody outside of your circle of family in the community or in the government or amongst your friends would dissolve instantly the minute you became a Christian. It could cost you your job. It could cost you uh, your comforts or your home. It got to the point shortly after 62 AD, shortly after Paul wrote the book of Philippians, it got to the point where believing in Christ and being baptized was to sign your own death warrant. And you knew that when you went down to the water to be baptized. That being baptized is to put a mark on me for being a Christian. Now contrast that with what it's like to be a Christian in America in 2007. What does it cost you to be a Christian in this country today? What does it cost you? Oh, you have to come to church on Sunday. You've got to give up your Sundays. Oh, woe is you. You have to actually come to set aside a whole day of your week. Or maybe somebody looked askance at you when they found out that you don't believe in evolution. You actually believe that there's only one way of salvation. And somebody sort of rolled their eyes at you. Woe is you. Poor you. That's what it cost you. Now we realize it doesn't cost us anything, right? In fact, it costs us so little that it is difficult for us even to imagine what genuine, real persecution is actually like. It is difficult for us to imagine what it is like for Christians today while you sit here 
who are spread all over the world suffering for the faith. Friends, do you realize that before you go to sleep tonight, there will be Christians, a lot of them, who will give up their lives for their faith. And it's difficult for us to even imagine what living life is like under that constant threat of persecution. So difficult that verses in the New Testament that speak of the subject of suffering are even difficult for us to to appreciate. Let me give to you a few of them. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you endure various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And from our scripture reading, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 9, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you see Him not, and though you not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice. Listen to this. With joy inexpressible. First Peter chapter 3 verse 14. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. First Peter 4.13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, Keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. And you know what boggles our minds in those verses? Not that somebody was suffering. It's words like exult, exceeding joy, rejoicing, joy inexpressible. Those are the parts of those verses that you and I have a hard time swallowing. It is difficult for us in our modern day contemporary American culture and environment to imagine what it is like to genuinely suffer for the faith. I don't remember, do you, the last time an American Christian was beat publicly just because he was a Christian? Do you remember the last time that happened? Simply because he was a believer. When was the last time you read of an entire church being rounded up and put into a concentration camp because they had illegal scriptures in their midst? Ever happen in America? Doesn't, does it? Do you know what happens all over the world? It was happening to the church in Philippi. You know the problem with American Christianity... And by the way, I'm not trying to suggest that being free and enjoying prosperity and enjoying the blessings of liberty is a bad thing. It's not what I'm suggesting at all. Those are good things. Those in themselves are gifts of God. Freedom is a gift from God. Liberty is a gift from God. Prosperity is a gift from God. Freedom from persecution is a gift from God. But we have enjoyed in our country so much prosperity, so much freedom, we have become as Christians spiritually fat, dumb, and lazy. In our culture, that is the condition of the church. With no discernment, no love for truth, it has become so easy to become a Christian that it is difficult for us to even tell wheat from tares anymore, sheep from goats anymore. And sometimes the goats are assumed to be sheep simply because they can imitate the sheep. Christians have come not only to enjoy the blessings, but Christians have come even to expect the blessings. And we are told that God must bless you with freedom and ease and health and wealth and prosperity and a pain-free life. And then Christians come to expect that. Or I should say people who come to Jesus for those things come to expect that. And then what happens is they get into the faith and they become start acting like Christians and putting on all the outward trappings of Christianity. And then when Jesus doesn't deliver what somebody promised that He would deliver, 
and they actually face trials and tribulations, temptation, persecution, sufferings, what happens is they end up saying, well, this whole Christianity thing doesn't work. They throw it away and they become another bitter, disillusioned backslider. And they leave the faith and they depart from the faith because Jesus didn't pay out what everybody said He was going to pay out. And they're promised a good life from Christ. They don't get the good life from Christ. We want our purpose-driven best life now. I've, I've determined that I'm going to write a, a very popular book. I think it's going to be a bestseller. It's the Jabez Purpose-Driven Best Life Now Prayer. I think if I could write a book like that, it would sell millions of copies. Because that's what in Christianity we have come to expect and even demand from God. And then when God doesn't come through, what happens? We get bitter and we say, hey, where were you? Right? You're supposed to be my cosmic bellhop, delivering everything upon my command or my utterance of a prayer. Well, the Philippians were suffering persecution and Paul writes to them to encourage them. And the encouragement that he gives them is something that you and I don't initially think of right at the top of our heads. He says, look, the suffering that you're going through is a gift. It's God's gift to you. In fact, he writes to encourage the Philippians and he reminds them of two gifts that the Philippians had been given by the gracious and good and kind and loving hand of God. And these verses in verse 29 and 30 are intended to be an encouragement. Our outline this morning is going to be very simple. We're going to look at the giver of the gifts, the recipients of the gifts, and then we're going to look at the two gifts themselves. Verses 29 and 30. Read them again with me. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So let's look first of all at who the giver of these gifts are. It is implied, not stated, but implied strongly in the text that the giver of these gifts is God from two things. First of all, Paul says it has been granted, and he uses the passive voice, indicating that this is not something that the Philippians achieved or acquired or gave to themselves. They are the passive recipients of a gift that God had given to them. Furthermore, you, you can't ignore the connection with verse 28. Do you remember verse 28? Be in no way alarmed by your opponents, for this is a sign of their destruction and your salvation, and that from God. Now, verse 29 explains the phrase, and that from God. What was Paul talking about in verses 27 and 28? He was talking about two things. Their suffering and their salvation. And he gets to the end of it and he says, your suffering is an indication that those who cause you suffering are going to be destroyed, their destruction. And it is also an indication of your own salvation. The world doesn't persecute its own. So if you endure suffering, then you can rejoice understanding that the enduring of the bringing of suffering into your life is itself from God as an evidence of your own salvation. And that, Paul says, is from God. What is from God? Something in those verses is from God. Verse 29 explains it. The two things that Paul has been talking about, suffering and salvation, Paul says it's from God. So verse 29 explains that last phrase, and this or that is from God. What is from God? To you it has been granted. That is to say that God is the giver of the gift. To you it has been granted two things. To believe on Christ, and second, to suffer for His namesake. Those are the two gifts. And God Himself is the giver of those gifts. I just want to stop here for a second and remind you, if you suffer, if you experience pain, if affliction or trials come, here is your response. You thank God for them. You know what we typically do in American evangelicalism? We've fallen so far away from reality or anything biblical that we typically try and absolve God from any wrongdoing in our suffering. The, the standard cliche response after 9-11 on and every, from every Christian I heard, except for a few, just a handful, 
was that this was not God's will. This was not in God's plan. God didn't want this to happen. And I listened to that and I asked myself, then what happened on September 11th? Did God leave His throne to go to the bathroom and turn it over to Gabriel for a while? And I'm not being irreverent. I'm simply using the same language that Elijah uses of the people's false god in, in first something 17, I think it is. He, he, did God go to the bathroom for a period of time and turn the throne over to Gabriel and then come back and say, what did you allow to happen in my absence? Listen, whether God causes it or whether God allows it, we are back to God at the end of the day anyway. As being in some way causing it or allowing it. And what Christians typically try to do is say, hey, he's not involved in your suffering. He would never will that. As if God's only aim for all of eternity is to give you a pain-free life. And that He is up there working as hard as He can to keep you from suffering. Or to keep you from facing any trial or any sort of affliction or any sort of pain. And then when he fails to do that, we blame God for it, or we get bitter, or we say he had nothing to do with it. I want you to notice what Paul does. He takes the blame for their suffering, the Philippians, and he lays it right at the feet of God, and he says it is a gift. And it is God himself who is the giver of that gift. So what is our response? Thank you, Lord. It's difficult to do sometimes, but we thank him. Thank you for the trial, because you're going to do something through this. I know it's in your purpose. I know it's in your plan. It must be for my good or you would not allow it to happen. So I thank you for it. He is the giver of these gifts. Second, look at the recipients of the gifts. To you, Paul says, it has been granted. Who are the recipients of it? The Christians in Philippi. The Christians in Philippi. Now listen, there is a distinction that Paul is drawing all the way through verses 27 through 30. There are two groups of people that he is contrasting. There are the Philippians who had received the Gospel and there are the opponents of the Gospel who were causing them suffering. There were those who were suffering and there were those who were causing the suffering. There were the proponents of the Gospel and the opponents of the Gospel. There were, in the words of verse 28, those who were being saved and those who were facing destruction. Those are the two groups. Now in verse 29, Paul singles out the Philippian Christians and he says, to you it has been granted. Who is he talking to? He's talking to Christians. Listen, friends, these two gifts are not given to everyone. It is not granted to everybody who has ever lived to believe on Christ and to suffer for His namesake. It is granted to whom? Christians. How do I know if I have been given the gift of believing and suffering? If you're a Christian and you're suffering, then you've been given those gifts. But it is, it is not given to everybody to believe any more than it is given to everybody to suffer for Christ's namesake. That is a gift that is given to Christians. It's not to everybody. The minute you say, hey, this is something that's given to everybody, you destroy all of the encouragement in the passage. What Paul is doing is he's talking about the unbelievers, he's talking about the believers, back and forth between the two, and he says, listen, to you who have believed, you've received these two wonderful gifts. These are not given to everybody. Unbelievers don't suffer for Christ's sake. Believers suffer for Christ's sake. Unbelievers are not granted belief. Believers are granted belief. There's a distinction here. So we've looked at the giver of the gifts. We've looked at the recipients of the gifts. Now let's look at the gifts themselves. For to you, Paul says, it has been granted two things. To believe on Him. This is granted for Christ's sake. To believe on Him. And then second, to suffer for His name's sake. Granted is the word charizomai, from which we get our word gifted or graced. 
Charis is the word for grace in the New Testament. Charismata is the grace gifts or the spiritual gifts. Charizomai is only used by two people in all the New Testament, Paul and Luke. Sixteen times in Paul's epistles, seven times in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. It's used that number of times by those two guys. And whenever Paul uses it, what he is communicating is the decisive act of God in giving a gift to someone. It is a grace gift. It is a charism, charisma. Yeah, it's one of those, a grace gift that is given to somebody. It is gracious. It's not earned. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. It is by grace. And it cannot be by works. If God gives something to somebody because they have earned it, it's not grace. And the minute earning comes into the picture, merit comes into the picture, or my part comes into the picture, it's no longer grace. It's something else, but it's not grace. Grace is all of grace. Human merit is all of human merit. And never the two shall meet. So when Paul says, or when the Word says, that God has graciously granted something, bestowed something upon somebody, it means that it is unmerited. I don't meet God halfway in this. He doesn't give this to me because He sees something in me. He doesn't give this to me because of something I have done or something I would have done. Then it's based upon human merit. This is a gracious, undeserved, unmerited gift given from the hand of a good God. Like in Romans chapter 8 when the Apostle Paul says, He who delivered up His own Son for us all, how will He not also what? Freely give us all things. It means the decisive act of God in giving grace to somebody. Undeserved, unmerited. That's what it is. He has granted it. Now the two things, the gift of believing and the gift of suffering. It is difficult for us to accept that these two things are gifts from God, but for different reasons. It is difficult for us to accept that faith or believing is a gift of God for this reason. Because there is something in us that says, whoa, 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 that's not fair. Is there not? Is there not something in us that says, how, how can this be the gift of God? Why is that not given to everybody? That's not fair. Never ask God for fairness. It wasn't fair to punish His Son for you. It was just, but it wasn't fair. So you never ask God for fairness. There's something in us that says, it's my right to believe on Christ. I'm free to believe on Christ if I want to. God has nothing to do with this. He has to stay out of the equation. That's my decision to make, all mine, without any influence of divine grace. That's what something in us wants to say. And it is difficult for us to accept that that is actually God's gift to us. The believing is God's gift to us. I should qualify that. It is difficult for us to accept that until we have a biblical, realistic understanding of what we are without Christ. But once I come to a biblical understanding of the depths of the depravity of my own heart, my own hopelessness, my own helplessness, my own wretchedness, and my own wickedness, once I understand that, then I say, oh yeah, it had to be granted to me. It could not have been any other way. But as long as you're sitting here this morning and you think that you are spanky, you are the bee's knees, you have a little problem called sin, but it's just a minor one, and you are free to do this or that or save yourself or work it out to your own your own way on your own terms and you'll meet God halfway. You do His part and hopefully He will accept something that you do or something that is in you and He'll make up where you lack. As long as you think that, it's going to get stuck right here. You're just not going to, it's going to be easier to swallow gravel 
than it is to swallow this text. Now, it's difficult for us to accept that suffering is a gift from God, but for a different reason. We don't like suffering. It's uncomfortable, is it not? It's painful. There's nothing about affliction. There's nothing about suffering that we enjoy. It's not enjoyable. People who enjoy suffering are sick. People who enjoy pain are sick. It's difficult for us to accept that suffering is a gift from God because we typically think that God is in heaven doing everything He can to make sure that we avoid any difficulty, any trials, any uh, any suffering or affliction in our lives whatsoever. And that if it happens, it must be because of a mistake, it must be because we're cursed, it must be for some reason other than a gift of God. That's how we typically think. I'm just like you. I have. I don't enjoy suffering. I don't enjoy pain. I have a high pain tolerance, but I don't enjoy it. I keep ibuprofen in my truck, in my car, by my bedside stand. I sprinkle it over my breakfast. I don't enjoy pain any more than anybody else enjoys pain. But we err if we think that this cannot be God's gift to us. It is a gift to us. Affliction is a gift. Suffering is a gift. Now let's look at the two gifts, shall we? They're difficult for us to accept, but let's just look at what the text says and see what Paul writes. For to you it has been granted not only, for Christ's sake, not only to believe, Pistuo is the word. It speaks of a confidence or a trust. We are pistuo, believe, we're placing our faith, our confidence, or trust in Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, it is used of saving faith, saving confidence. And that's how it's used here. Romans chapter 10, Paul writes, How then will we call on whom and him, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And the context is salvation. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we might be justified, since nobody is justified by the law. And the context is salvation. And how Paul uses that word belief is in the context of saving faith, redeeming faith, confidence or trust in Christ. Friends, that's what belief is. That's what saving confidence is. It's not mental assent. It's not you saying, yeah, I believe all of these things about Jesus. The demons can offer that much. Saving faith is embracing faith, confidence or trust in somebody else to pay my debt for me. It is confidence in a person, not a list of doctrines, not a system of belief, not a church, not a prayer that you prayed, not getting into the heaven by the shirt tails of your grandparents or anything else. It is personal fiducia, trust, confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross on my behalf. That's what Paul is talking about here. Now, is this the only place in the New Testament where it says that saving faith is a gift from God? The answer is no. The Scriptures talk about this so many different ways. It would be difficult for me to even read to you all the examples. In the Old Testament, it says that it is God who gives us a heart of flesh for a heart of stone. In the New Testament, it says it is God who raises us up and gives us a new nature. We are new creatures in Christ. We must be born again by the Spirit of God. That is God's work in us. In the book of Acts, it says that the Lord had to open Lydia's heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Why? Because a divine work was necessary before she could believe. In the book of Acts... Repentance, and we saw this on different occasions, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 5, and Acts chapter 18, it says that repentance is granted to somebody. It is gifted to somebody. And repentance is linked with faith. The two go together. They're two sides of the same coin. 
And repentance is something that must be given or granted or allowed by God. All through the New Testament it says that this is God's gift to us. Now probably a familiar passage that you could quote from off the top of your mind, probably 90% of you, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And that is not of yourselves. It's not of yourselves. The that refers to all of those. Grace, salvation, and faith. It's not of you. You didn't originate your faith. It didn't come from within you. You are not the author and the finisher of your saving faith. Guess who is? Jesus is the author and finisher of our saving faith. He is the one who gives that to us. That's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God so that you and I cannot stand in heaven and pound our chest and say, yes, but I believe. That was my faith. I did it. I contributed this. It's not yours. You know, there's a difference between human faith and divine faith. Or human faith and, I shouldn't say divine faith, but the faith that comes as a gift of God to His people. Do you know there's a difference between the two? Human faith wavers. Human faith falters. Human faith stumbles. Human faith can, can walk away from what it is that we believe in. You and I place faith in a lot of things every single day. We exercise human faith to turn on the lights, to get in a car, to, to order something from the store. You go out for lunch today. You are placing human faith in the restaurant and the people that there's not somebody back there sprinkling arsenic over your food before they serve it to you. That's human faith. Human faith walks away from the object of its faith. Divine faith does not. The faith that is a gift from God does not. The faith that is a gift of God saves us, sanctifies us, and secures us for eternal life. That is divine faith. And there's a difference. You ever wonder why it is that you can have two men? Let me give you two scenarios. You have one man who comes to faith in Christ and he suffers affliction and trials and persecutions and eventually gives his life for the Lord as a result of his faith and he never once wavers and he does it with bravery and he does it with uh, by standing firm and being steady and immovable and he ends up dying for the faith. Obviously somebody in a different country that I'm talking about. Then you get somebody else who comes to the Lord and they put on all of the outward trappings of Christianity. They say, I believe in Christ. They're baptized. They adopt the Christian walk for a period of time. And then trial, temptation, and tribulation comes. And what do they do? They give it all up and they walk away. And you say, how is it that we have two people, both of whom said they placed their faith in Jesus Christ. The one endures all of this and he remains strong. The other endures nothing and ends up abandoning it. You know what the answer is? The one had the gift of faith Saving faith, which was wrought by the Spirit of God in the heart, and it evidenced itself by persevering all the way to the end. The other person placed human faith in the object, and then they walked away from it. One faith saves, that is the gift, that which has been granted. The other faith wavers and falters in unbelief. Now the person who perseveres all the way to the end What do they say when they get to eternity? My faith sure made it. My faith sure made it. It was stronger than the next guy who didn't make it? Is it something in the person that makes the difference? So that we can all look around at each other in eternity and say, hey, your faith is pretty strong. Good job. You made it. That's not how it's going to work, friends. We're going to all stand in eternity and say, praise be to the one who granted that we would believe on Him for eternal life. For by grace I have been saved through faith, and that is not of myself. Not of myself. 
It is the gift of God. Charles Spurgeon, he said, We are bound to view salvation as being surely a divine act as creation or providence or resurrection. At every point of the process of salvation, this word is appropriate, not of yourselves. From the first desire after it to the full reception of it by faith, it is evermore of the Lord alone and not of ourselves. The man believes, but that belief is only one result among many of the implantation of divine life within the man's soul by God Himself. That is absolute gospel truth. For to you it has been granted to believe on Christ. And not only that, but to suffer for His namesake. You say, that sounds radical. Surely there are people out there who don't believe that. Oh, of course there are. So I read some of them this last week just to see what it is that they do say about the text because it's always easy to leave a sermon like this and say, well, there are people who have different interpretations. And then you go and you have your steak or whatever you're going to do for lunch and you don't give any more thought to it. So what I want to do is I want to offer to you some of the other interpretations of the verse and let's just look and see how they stand up, shall we? Let me offer to you three of them. Somebody will come along and they will say, what Paul is talking about there is not the gift of believing itself, What Paul is talking about there is our responsibility to believe when offered and our responsibility to suffer when it comes. Not the actual believing itself. Now, I just ask you this question. You're sensible people and you have the revelation open in your lap and I ask you this question. What does it say in the text? Do you see the word responsibility anywhere? If the Apostle Paul wanted to say we've been given the responsibility, there are ways of saying that in the Greek. He doesn't say that. What is the gift that is given to us? To be believing. That's the gift. Not the responsibility to believe, but to believe. Who is given the responsibility to believe? Just Christians or all men? All men. But Paul says to you it has been given to believe. Not to all men is given the responsibility but to believe, but to you, the Christian, has been given the belief. Now some people will come along, second interpretation, and they will say, but Paul's not talking about the gift of believing itself. He's talking about the opportunity to believe. The opportunity to believe. To you has been given the opportunity to be believing. Now you're sensible people and you have the revelation open in your lap and I ask you this question. What does the text say? Do you see the word opportunity anywhere in the context? Not just the verse, the context. You don't. If Paul wanted to say you have been given the opportunity to believe, there are ways he could have said that. He didn't say that. Who's given the opportunity to believe? Only the Philippian Christians? A lot of different people, right? The opponents of the gospel had the opportunity to believe, but Paul says, to you has been given the gift of believing. Third possible interpretation. Some people say, Paul's not talking about initial saving faith, that which makes us children of God or brings us into the blessings of Christ. Paul is talking about the day-to-day faith that is necessary for enduring the salvation. He's not talking about saving faith, the initial saving faith. He's talking about what I need day to day to endure the sufferings. Now, let me just counter this. You're not going to pick that up in the text, but let me just counter this by saying this. There is no difference in Scripture between that faith which saves you and that faith which sanctifies you and secures you and brings you safely to your heavenly home. It's the same faith. There's not one faith for getting saved and one faith for living. By faith you are kept by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time, that same faith that saves you, that has caused you to be born again to a living hope, that same faith is the same faith that you walk day after day after day. Just as you have received Christ, you walk in Him. You don't get saved by one faith and then walk by another faith. It's all one faith. It's the same faith. 
It's the same divine faith that saves me is the same as that faith which secures me. It's the same as that faith which sanctifies me. It's all the same faith. There's not different faiths. This, it's ludicrous. Just think about it for a second. You read in Scripture that you're aliens from God. You're separated from the life of God. There's nothing in your flesh. Nothing good dwells. You're unable to please God. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. Your intellect is darkened. You're children of wrath, under the wrath of God. Dead sinners, corrupt, will not seek God, don't want anything to do with God, can't do any righteousness. And God can keep His hands off and you can within yourself create the faith that saves you. But then, as a new creation in Christ with a new nature and a new home and a new identity, you somehow need divine help to live day by day. Because I can't do that on my own. So I need God to help me with that, but not to get saved. That is just absurd. That is just simply absurd. The same faith that saves you is the same faith that right now holds you, and it is the same faith that is going to deliver you all the way to your eternal home. That faith has been granted to you from above. All of these examples of trying to misinterpret this text are simply examples of people with preconceived theological commitments, preconceived philosophical ideas, and trying to force something into the text that absolutely is not there. Paul meant what he said, and he said what he meant. To you it has been granted to believe on Christ. That is God's gift to you. And I don't know how anybody can do anything but just fall down and worship and say, thank you for that gift. Because I know my own heart, and I know what he saw in me before Christ. And it is not good. It had to be granted to me. And he did that. He granted that to me. You know, Jesus talked about this subject too. If you're not going to believe Paul, at least give some credence to the Lord Jesus. John chapter 6, he was talking about those who have believed and those who would not believe. And he says in John 6:44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come. No one has the ability. It's not that no man is permitted. It's that no man is able. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, immediately after Jesus said that, some of his disciples said, hey, that's too much for us. We're fine if you want to talk about little children and love and, and loving your neighbor and put the children on your lap and bless them and pat them on the head. If that's what you want, we're fine with that. We're fine with you healing mother-in-laws and making the lame walk. But once you start suggesting that some of us cannot come to you unless it's been granted from above, that's too much for us. And it says that some of his disciples walked with him no more. Then Jesus explained it in John chapter 6, verse 65. He said, for this reason, I said to you, that no man can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. So if you have come to Christ, it is for one reason and one reason only. It has been granted to you by the Father that you would. I don't know how else to say that. I don't know how much clearer that could be than to say it just the way that Paul said it. Now does this mean that if faith is a gift that I don't have to do anything? You think I believe that? I don't believe that. Why would I go to Awana on Friday night if I believe that? Do you think that because I believe that faith is a gift that we're free of responsibility, we don't have to believe, we'll just not do anything, God will do it all, and not call upon anybody to believe? No, listen, Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And what did Paul respond with? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Now, ten years later, he writes a letter back to the Philippian church, and the Philippian jailer hears Paul say in his letter, verse 29, to you it has been granted to believe. See, friends, the two go together. Just like repentance and sanctification, and perseverance. Faith is at one and the same time both a human responsibility and a divinely bestowed gift. 
So you must repent of your sins. We are called upon to repent. And yet, God grants repentance. You must pursue holiness without which no man will see the Lord. And yet, Scripture says, it is Him who works in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It is Him who sanctifies us by His Spirit and by His truth. You must persevere in the faith, and you are warned against falling away. But at the same time, it is Him who completes the good work that He begun in us. It is Him who keeps us through faith, by His power for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And it is you who must believe on Christ, or you will perish, and it is God who has granted it to you to believe. They go together. I have to move on to the gift of suffering, or we're going to be here another Sunday before we get done with Philippians chapter 1. But i I got to give you one more quote from Spurgeon on how these two things go together. Listen to what Spurgeon writes. A man ought to believe in Jesus. It is his duty to receive Him whom God has set forth to be a propitiation for sins. But man will not believe in Jesus. He prefers anything to faith in his Redeemer. Unless the Spirit of God convinces the judgment and constrains the will, man has no heart to believe in Jesus unto eternal life. I ask any saved man to look back upon his own conversion and explain how it came about. You turned to Christ and believed in His name. These were your own acts and deeds. That's human responsibility. But what caused you to thus to turn? What sacred force was that which turned you from your sin to righteousness? Do you attribute this singular renewal to the existence of a something better in you that has yet been undiscovered in your neighbor? No, you confess that you might have been what he is now if it had not been that there was a potent something which touched the spring of your will, enlightened your understanding, and guided you to the foot of the cross. Gratefully we confess the fact it must be so. Salvation by grace through faith is not of ourselves, and none of us would dream of taking any honor to ourselves from our conversion or from any gracious effect which has flowed from that first divine cause. No glory to me. Why? It has been granted to us not only to believe, but the second gift, to suffer for His name's sake. Now, they were already suffering. Suffering for the Philippians was not something distant, not some potential, not something they were looking forward to. You look at verse 30, Paul says, you're already experiencing the same conflict, the same fight that you saw in me and now here to be in me. Back in Acts chapter 16, Paul was with the Philippians. They saw him beaten, put in prison, put in shackles, publicly humiliated in front of all of the people for the sake of the Gospel. And Paul says now, you have fellowship with me. Remember the theme of fellowship in chapter 1? You are suffering the same conflict which you saw in me and you now here to be in me. In other words, when you suffer for the Gospel, you enter into the same suffering that Paul was suffering. When we suffer for the Gospel in America, as minimal as it is, we enter into the same conflict that's being experienced by our brethren throughout the rest of the world. We have fellowship in the body of Christ. When one member suffers, all of them suffer. And now Paul says, you're just like me. I have experienced this, and now you're experiencing the same suffering. It doesn't mean that the Philippians were experiencing the identical things that Paul was experiencing. It means that just as Paul was suffering for the Gospel, so the Philippians were now suffering for the Gospel. And they could rejoice in his example and rejoice in him sort of spearheading the way and enduring it on their behalf and suffering for the Gospel, and they could have fellowship there. When one of us suffers alone, it's a hard thing to endure. But when all of us suffer together, it's easier to endure because we realize, I'm not alone in this. Others are doing this as well. Others are going through the same type of suffering that I'm enduring. 
And that's what they were doing. Now, this would be encouragement to them to realize that, look, the suffering that we experience is not because God is afflicting us for no reason. It's not because God hates us. It's not because God has stepped away from His throne for a period of time. It's not because something in heaven has failed. Some angel failed to carry out His service. It's not necessarily because of some sin in my life. It's not necessarily because God wants to get my attention. You hear Christians say that all the time. Something bad happens. The Lord must be trying to get my attention. Well, I think the Lord has ways of getting your attention other than just allowing something bad to happen. It may be that God wants to get your attention. Or somebody will say something bad happens, they say, well, it must be some sin in my life. Why can't God bring you affliction in your holiness? Why does He only have to do it in sin? Do you know that sometimes God causes you affliction not because of any sin in your life, but simply because you're pure in His sight? Job? Do you remember Job? Was it because of some sin in Job's life that he went through all of that? Was it because God was trying to get Job's attention that he went through all of that? No, the Lord had Job's attention. Job was not a sinner. He was a righteous man. And God brought him affliction. Sometimes it's true God needs to get your attention. C.S. Lewis said God speaks to us or He whispers to us in our pleasure and He shouts to us in our pain. That's true. Sometimes it's necessary for God to bring affliction into your life to correct you as a discipline. Sometimes that's the case. Not all the time. When you endure suffering and affliction, you've got to look at it and say, is it because of some sin? I know of nothing. So there's no need to assume that. Is it because God has not had my attention? Well, I, I don't think that that's the case. Well, it may just be that I'm enduring affliction for the sake of Christ. Or it may be that I'm enduring the affliction because God wants to draw me closer to Himself. That's a gift. Or it may be that God wants to show something to other Christians through what I endure. Then that's a gift. Those are the gifts of God to His children from His good hand. Now, do the wicked endure suffering and affliction? Do they? Do the wicked endure pain? Do the wicked endure suffering? Yeah. I have a, my father never came to Christ, died less than a year ago. Very painful death from cancer, throat cancer. Um, I'm sure that that was very painful, immensely painful. Affliction, suffering that he went through. A lot of people who are unbelievers and are wicked in God's sight, have nothing to do with Christianity, suffer all kinds of trials and tribulations. They have miscarriages too. They hit their thumb with a hammer too. They, they get in car accidents too. They lose loved ones too. From our perspective, and I'm speaking the words of Psalm 73 now, from our perspective, we look at it and say, why are the wicked at ease? Because we look at our own affliction and it's more real to us than whatever affliction the wicked are going through. And we look at the wicked and say, why are they at ease? But they're not. The wicked endure affliction and suffering as well. But here's the question. Is it a gift from God to the wicked? It's not. It's not. There is a difference between the affliction that visits the wicked and the affliction that visits the righteous. Thomas Watson, and I know I'm quoting a, a lot of people in this, but I ran across all this stuff this week and thought, I've got to share this with you. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, wrote on the difference between the affliction that the righteous endure and the affliction that the wicked endure. And listen, they don't write them like this anymore. How do the afflictions of the godly differ from the afflictions of the wicked? Number one, the afflictions of the godly are but corrections but those of the wicked are punishments. The one comes from a father, the other from a judge. The afflictions of the godly are fruits of covenant mercy. The afflictions of the wicked are effects of God's wrath. The afflictions on the wicked are the pledge of hell. They are like the shackling of a malefactor which presages his execution. The afflictions of the godly make them better. The afflictions of the wicked make them worse. The godly pray more, the wicked blaspheme more. Affliction on the godly, and I love this, affliction on the godly is like bruising spices, which makes them give off a most sweet and fragrant aroma. Affliction on the wicked 
is like pounding weeds with a pestle, which makes them give off a foul stench. It is a sign the affliction is sanctified when the heart is brought to a sweet, submissive frame. Do the wicked suffer affliction? They do. But it's not a gift from God. It's a judgment of God. And it's a harbinger of their judgment to come and their destruction. But when the godly suffer affliction, it's always from the good hand of a loving Father. And He withholds no good things from His children. It's all good. It's always a gift. Difficult for us to understand how both our belief and our suffering are gifts from a good God. But my friends, they are. And it leads us to say with Paul, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who can be His counselor? Truly, His ways are higher than mine. And His thoughts are higher than mine. Are they not? And so we conclude with Paul, to Him be glory, both now and forever in the church, because His ways are higher than mine. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for stretching our minds and our hearts this morning. We ask that You would sanctify these truths to our heart, that we may understand the good hand of a loving Father in both our salvation and in our suffering. Help us not to pursue suffering, but when it does come, to accept it from Your hand as a good and loving gift. And may we, God, be awed and thankful for that saving faith which also comes as a gift from Your hand. Gracious, unmerited, undeserved, and we will see it bring to us eternally the salvation of our souls. Thank You for our salvation. Thank You for sanctifying us. And thank You for securing us for our eternal reward. In Jesus' name, we give You praise this morning. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.